0: Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. What the fuck is up? How you doing? <laughs> I shouldn't have started that <laughs> way because <laughs> I do note that there have been some people, um, uh, you know, some of our new listeners perhaps on Twitter who have said, you know, there's a lot of F-bombs in your show. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, we know. Um, it's part of our charm. It's part of our general likeability and but we do have like a thing where if you are for example gonna share an episode with a class or something like that and you need us to edit it out we will edit out bombs by request yeah yeah but anyway what the fuck is that ah
1: not much not a whole lot like we are uh really in the summer i know a lot of our listeners are like in the middle of a heat wave which has gotta suck i, I mean i'm not so i like i can say that non wave life is really great. Um, but it's hard to not be really afraid of, of global warming and of climate change in this moment. And so I'm feeling like there's a lot of anxiety kind of hanging in that in that summer air.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's how I exactly. am. Yeah. Well, you know, what fixes that is Negroni's while podcasting.
1: Oh, my God. You, are you doing it again? I am because people requested oh. it. They did. They did. So I um I, I had uh, a couple of gins in the park yesterday and then I like later on realized that I didn't socially distance with some friends that I haven't seen in a long time and I felt like an asshole. So I've kind of been like, I, I probably should not, I, you know, punishing myself a little bit, taking the day off from, I usually have a drink on the weekend. I mean, I've been trying to also not drink on the weekdays. So I got to say all of that uh, to say that I, I don't have anything in here. I don't even have my standard tea.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm I am not a drinker. I'm not the type of person to drink very much at all. So uh, this, t- for this to be like a, a drink on the weekend with you is is quite nice. But I forgive you for having tea today. Um, but we can <laughs> we can make this a thing. But beyond our drink choice, um, we have some things to talk about. But before we get to the things to talk about, I know we have a lot of people to thank this week. So why don't we just get into that? We do.
1: We didn't thank people last week.
0: We we dove right into our episode um, and we got
1: a lot of feedback from that episode as well. So thank you. If you gave us feedback, we really appreciated that. And for everyone that did donate and then was hoping to hear their name and then didn't hear their name, it's coming now. So uh, thank you so much to the folks who've donated um, for the first time or who've changed their donation. That is Adrian, Anna, Ryan, Rachel, Barbara, Ben, John, Ben. Angeloon, Brittany, Ali, Neil, Daniel, Meg, Nicole, Doris, Monica, Jade, Kirsten, Marielle, May, Lawrence, Christopher, Black Diamond, Josh, Rachel, Steph, MC Football, Claire, Edson, Michael, Mike, Jonathan, Alex, Shawarma, Gordon, Ashley, Ali, Joel, John, Lois, Natalia, Marnie, Stephen, And Jennifer, thank you so, 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 so much for your support. And thanks to everyone who supports the podcast, whether you share it online or you just get a smile listening to us. We we appreciate it. We love you all. I mean, there's no other way to say it. We really do love you all.
0: And we cannot wait until we can get on the road once again, uh, once it's possible to do some travel, because that's where... A lot of these funds are going to go to is um, towards both transcripts, um, paying for the costs of making the p- podcast, but also for live shows. And so we are very eager to do that when we can. Today, we are going to discuss uh, two things, two things. First, we think it's probably important for us to just do a little, a little addendum, a little, a little follow up, an, an epilogue if you will,
1: <laughs> a postmortem, I would say <laughs>
0: a postmortem of, of what we discussed on our last podcast, which was the fact that the WE organization was going to be distributing this Canada Summer Grants uh, volunteer COVID scheme that the Liberals had cooked up, and it appears that that plan is now dead. <laughs>
1: uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to take any credit at all. I don't think that this show has. <laughs> yes, you fucking
0: do, you liar. Look, I know Nora quite well. She wants to take credit, and you should. You already did on Twitter. What the okay, fuck? Okay, I mean, yeah, that's true. I mean, more credit? No. <laughs> it. It. Like we.
1: We called that it was going to happen. Um, we said that probably like by the time you're listening to that episode, the contract would probably have been taken away from them, which is what's happened. It is a. Good reminder that the liberals will try to get away with anything if they think that people are not paying attention, and so it's really important that we do pay attention and that we challenge them. Because this contract, nine hundred million dollars to go to the We charity, to 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 do work that civil servants have the capacity to do, that universities and colleges have the capacity to do, uh, it was it was sketchy from day one, and um and it's just been so nice to see uh, the liberals look it's totally embarrassed the trudeau lost uh, a communications staffer out of this whole situation uh, one of the one of his comms guys resigned this past week and uh, And we, I mean, the the stories coming out from so many former workers at the at the charity are really horrifying. At the beginning of Covid, they laid off hundreds of workers. They didn't hire them back with employment grants that uh, are supposed to encourage people to be unlaid off during the the crisis. And, you know, these are young, active, activist, progressive people who join WE based on the promise that they were going to do good work, maybe in Canada or maybe in another place around the world. And it's just sound like so disillusioning for so many of them. And I've heard from so many of you about your experiences at WE and how sad you were. And, and Sandy, it occurred to me, And I don't know if you saw me say this, but I'm sure it's occurred to you, too, that this is a really important victory to to break into the relationship between we and the Liberal Party. Because the Liberal Party very clearly benefits from access to high school kids and to tell them what progressive politics looks like through the we branded we day and all this kind of like neoliberal charity bullshit. And so any kind of pierce in that armor that we can make, uh, I'm just so happy to see it.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I had been thinking about that because, I mean, even myself as someone in high school, um, I remember thinking about, you know, uh, when I was like in grade 10 or something about how was I going to actualize uh, my desire to do good in the world and thought about two things. Uh, War Child and uh, Free the Children. <laughs> and right. uh, both organizations very similarly have, like, these relationships with the Liberal Party and uh, really uh, do a lot to tell young people in Canada that the way to do good is through charity and the way to do charity is very specific. Um, and I think that's to the detriment of a lot of grassroots organizing uh, in the country. And so, yeah, I do think that this is a, uh, a victory for all sorts of reasons. And it helps us to really think about uh, what we need to do, what we need to encourage uh, for youth across the country in terms of building their skills and providing opportunities uh, to um, uh, organize uh, in a way that is uh, really shifting the world and not not entrenching things the way they are. But that's a whole other conversation. But
1: actually, it's not. That's that's a conversation we're going to have today. That was a really perfect pivot. Um, though before we pivot, I just have to say a shout out to my cousin who I found out uh, went to high school with one of the Kielbergers and then lost a, a student council election against him and really hates hates them. so Ooh, um, <laughs> Ran against a
0: Kielberger. I mean, yeah. that is courage.
1: <laughs> totally courageous. Um, and so I had no idea until I was talking to my parents. I'm like, oh, yeah, have you talked to your cousin? I was like, no. <laughs> so I don't know if he <laughs> listens, but we hear him. That sucks. <laughs> it does. So you pivoted there.
0: <laughs> I tried. Yeah, you I tried. pivoted there.
1: It was perfect. It was so perfect. So this episode is going to be talking about blowing open the idea of what is possible and how we advocate for change in in, are we looking for incremental change are we looking for wide scale more radical change and how do we talk about these things uh, to people who are activists but then who are also um, average average folks and I know Sandy you have a lot to say about this and you've probably spent like six solid years of your life thinking about this issue
0: <laughs> probably more than that to be honest um, but I mean like 24 hours a day yeah <laughs> like, I mean w- the thing that kind of brought me to this discussion today like the the idea of talking about this today is like this uh, like this knowledge this knowledge that I have as an organizer and perhaps you have as well and other people who are watching what's going on right now, Um, about the campaign to defund the police. I've been having uh, some arguments with a lot of different types of people in the last few weeks uh, about, you know, what to do next, uh, what to do at all, what is too much to call for, what is too little to call for, all of these types of arguments that you often have as a grassroots organizer um, when other people have a stake in the way that policy moves. And so um, there are a lot of people out there, uh, some who are involved in uh, formal politics, who believe that, you know, it's calling for something like defunding the police is too much. Um, Calling for something more than 10% is too much. That uh, in order to get anything, we need to start with a study. We need to do this, that, the other, all sorts of things. Everything possible aside from calling for defunding the police. And I couldn't help... But like chuckle to myself about the the like franticness, like the fear around this, because as someone who is an organizer who like really looks at uh, the way uh, a society understands an issue and tries to, to push them towards understanding it in a different way. I'm like, what these people don't know who are arguing with me is that we already won. And it's like very funny to me that um, there are, you know, that you can tell who's an organizer and who's not, because uh, like there are people who know that we already won, like the, the people who are already celebrating. And you might be thinking to yourself, listening to this and thinking to yourself, what are you talking about? No laws have changed uh, in, uh, in Toronto, in Ontario, uh, perhaps in Canada, um, in certain places in Canada, certainly there, there have been, uh, changes to particular laws. Um, but you might be thinking to yourself, what are you talking about? That's not, that's not a win. We still have police. Like what, what are you talking about? Um, I'm talking about the moment where, uh, you know, the law policy follows society, follows culture. I'm talking about the moment where culture has shifted um, in a way that is like, you just, you can't go back to where you were once before. And the understanding of who the police are in the, in our culture has shifted so significantly over the last month that it is only a matter of time until these policy Uh, changes that need to follow such an understanding are put in place. And so the hand wringing over, do we do a review? Do we do an inquiry? Um, Do we call for less? Do we call for 10%, 30%, 40%, 50%? And it's like, sure, all of those things need to be discussed, but only in so far, not in a way to... Uh, because it's like we're either going to win with this little bit or we're not going to win at all. We've already won. What we're discussing now is how far we take it as a first step, how quickly those first steps come about, and how people want to be remembered um, when we look back 20 years from now and say, God, we had a service that was apparently dedicated to safety that literally did nothing. Why? Why? And see who was who were the people who were pushing to eliminate it and who were the people who were desperately trying to save it. <coughs> John Tory. Justin Trudeau.
1: <laughs> What's fascinating about this moment is that things have become True in a very quick period of time. And so, for anybody who's been socially active for the past two decades, it's been a real slog. Like, it's been really, really hard to try and confront neoliberal logic to make sure that people are thinking about something differently or calling for something different. And this is where like, you know, youth activism and youth movements are really important because often in youth movements, you always hear something that, that, that is, that is bucking the status quo that is not calling for minor tinkering to changing the system, especially if you're thinking of like the student movement. That's when you start to hear people say, no, we can have free tuition fees. We can have no student debt. We can have radical changes to the system. But to hear that, Become mainstream in a way in in broader society uh, is really fascinating. And I was thinking today about the victory of of anti blackness being a concept that is not debated, that is assumed to be true and exists and it, and it's named within the mainstream media and of course it's not across all the mainstream media but but these kinds of victories i think you know it's it's easy to get really down and frustrated about how progress takes a long time but the reality is is that the last 30 years have not been progress it has been decision after decision and government after government and lie after lie to make sure that the neoliberal project remained firmly entrenched, which it has. And in the last little bit from radical actions uh, built by by indigenous land defenders and radical actions built by young climate activists and, and, and radical actions built by Black Lives Matter and civil rights organizing, rights uh, for, for migrant justice, rights um fight fights against islamophobia this is all changing so much about how society operates and as you said and i think it's so important that what we what we need to change first is how we talk about these things and not necessarily expect to see the full, full-scale full government changes because it's not going to be put into place first by Doug Ford or by Justin Trudeau. Obviously, it's literally impossible to imagine Doug Ford being like, yeah, we're going to get rid of the OPP tomorrow. So then the question becomes, how does the society's changing discussions about these issues launch forward that kind of process of social change? And I mean, like, for anyone who's our generation or younger, we have literally never seen social change like that. Never, There has never been widespread social change in our lifetime. I mean, people might point to gay marriage, which was a huge change in perception of who can love someone else. And then there was laws that changed that obviously was an important change and made big difference in a lot of people's lives. But aside from that, it's all been retreat 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 and service to the banks and service to capital and so it really is an amazing moment right now that i hope people are energized by rather than kind of freaked out and saying "Oh, we're not doing enough or change isn't happening fast enough like (laughs) we're here to say the signs are really really good they're in our favor
0: right and in fact the 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 Example that you're bringing up of queer liberation, and I would also add trans liberation, is a really salient example of what I'm talking about. Culture has to shift before the had to shift before the policy and laws followed. You know, we're starting to see um, there was a recent Supreme Court decision in the United States protecting uh, trans people at their uh, places of work. I guarantee you that if culture hadn't shifted in such a way to understand. That, yes, trans people deserve all the same sorts of liberations and uh, freedom to exist and live and thrive as everybody the fuck else. Uh, We would not see that law embedded or changed at the Supreme Court level in the United States. But had we done what some people think is the way to 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 make change and just, you know, uh, lobbied to change the laws without trying to shift culture without playing outside the rules that the society sets up for us to say that this is how you change things if we hadn't changed culture on the ground completely first that win would not be possible and that win is only possible because we've changed culture and Nora, like You bring up such an important point when you're talking about uh, the the fact that we can talk about anti-Blackness as an issue. I recall like in 2015, before Black Lives Matter had actually made, you know, at that point we had done a a few actions uh, in Canada and... We hadn't uh, affected any policy change yet. People weren't talking about us on a policy stage and people, you know, people were asking us at that time, what are you even actually accomplishing? And I remember I kept thinking to myself even back then, oh, my God, we already won something really major and people don't understand. We had been on the news Um, So much uh, from 2014 to 2015, talking about anti-blackness, that all of a sudden journalists started uh, started taking our language and talking about anti-blackness themselves when an issue of anti-blackness came up. And the ability to talk about anti-blackness as an issue, as a legitimate issue. And, you know, in 2014, our first interviews, people were asking us, like, what is this anti-blackness that you're talking about? Why aren't you just talking about racism? What, th- like, almost making fun of us for raising it as an issue that stands alone. Um, you know, we, we shifted the way that that conversation happened uh, intentionally, strategically and significantly to the point where when it finally became time to have the carding conversation on a policy level, that wasn't a question. Anymore, And when it finally became time to have uh, a conversation about cops and schools in the uh, Toronto District School Board on a policy level, which we were able to eliminate, that wasn't a question. We were able to talk about anti-blackness without first explaining that. And so the cultural shift that we were able to bring about in 2014 was so critical. And I'm telling you all right now that we have already um, amassed a massive victory. In creating a significant cultural shift in the way that people understand how we deal with safety and security in our society and that the police simply do not do that. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about like operating within the rules, though, Nora, like when I brought that up, what did that bring up for you?
1: Well, I mean, in the student movement, there was always a big tension between do we do things in the rules or do, we do things outside of the rules? And it was always kind of a combination. You did them both.
0: We always did both in the student movement. And I actually think that that's fine. Like I think that that's, you know, like people should be everywhere at all, like uh, any any point where you can like poke at power um, and be either an annoyance or like a the, the massive fire that brings down power, whatever place that you are (laughs) within uh, the power structure uh, to be able to reach them. I think it's good, like go all places. But what I really mean by that is that sometimes people are so taken by the way that power tells us that, uh, that there are specific rules around how we change a thing. So, like, you know, in the last month, I mean, BLM has uh, our own principles about not meeting with any politician um, without it being like a public meeting that other people can can scrutinize. Um, and that's just a, it's a strategy of the way that we organize. And, uh, you know, people are like, oh, you you know, you should you should be. Um, uh to trying to get as many people as possible out to these deputations. And it's like, that's not a bad thing. Some people can do that. It's just not our strategy right now. Like other people can do that strategy. And we want other people to do that strategy. It is not our strategy. People are like, you know, you can get a meeting with these politicians. I can, I can help you get it so that you, you don't have to do all of this stuff that you're doing out on the ground. It's like, yeah, there are specific rules that people tell you you need to follow in order to create some sort of change. And I think, you know, I learned both through the student movement, but also through um, my activism um, against anti-blackness and all sorts of other things that the rules... You know, you, you should only follow rules. And I've said this before on the podcast. You should only follow rules when it makes sense to do so. Mm-hmm. If it doesn't make sense to follow the rules, then fuck the rules. The rules are in place uh, to benefit uh, the people in power. And maybe you don't want to benefit the people in power. Yeah,
1: I was thinking of the of the power that um, you know painting the street to say defund the police in downtown Toronto, and of course in cities across the United States where activists have done that that work. the the social impact that that had that piece of art that that you could see and it was striking versus the exercise of fighting for a ten percent budget reduction at city council that ended up being a failure. These are two very different tactics. You know, painting the road isn't going to change a public policy um, serving a motion at city council might change a public policy, except if you know anything about city council in Toronto, you know that it's a waste of time uh, with the folks who are there. And of course, it, it did fail. And so, yeah, so, so expanding our minds beyond what is allowed and, and those proper channels of decorum and protocol is so critical because there is an invisible world Uh, that average people cannot see of people who have power, who have access to power. There's private dinners, there's private clubs, there's probably sex yachts uh, that we don't even, thank fucking Christ, know about. And, I mean, everyone's talking about sex yachts and just this Epstein stuff. Is everyone
0: talking about sex yachts? (laughs) I'm not talking about sex yachts.
1: I'm avoiding the conversation, but, you know, the, like, the, the, the Epstein stuff is actually really interesting because there's a reason yeah. why he had access to, like, literally the most powerful people in the world. Um, things, things in the powerful realms, they, they actually do work secretly quietly invisibly and they these forces are the ones that are creating the economy that we live in or the society that we live in and they don't play by the rules I mean we just watched Justin Trudeau literally in front in public try to hand a nine hundred thousand dollar contract to a charity that has no fucking business doing the work that they were contracted to do like as if we weren't all paying attention going whoa wait what that doesn't make any sense um, And so like, they're not playing by the rules. And, you know, it's a, it's a knee-jerk reaction, I think, for a lot of progressives are like, whoa, 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 they're not playing by the rules. Like, we need to call them out. And we need to say, no, no, you need to respect the rules. And and you'll see that, you know, you'll see that in labor actions where um the employer is like, yeah, fuck the law. And you're like, okay, I'll see you in court, right? And yeah, five years later, when everyone's been laid off, you get a ruling saying, oh, they shouldn't have done that. And you're like, haha, moral victory, because... It was five years it's ago, and done. things have moved on. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's there's a legal reason for people to test things legally. There's a reason why you go through a court case sometimes uh, to to assert your rights or to make sure that your rights aren't being eroded because that's the way the legal system works. But we need to be very honest about the limits of those kinds of rule respecting tactics because they are not going to change people's minds you change people's minds and you change people's hearts by having uh these these campaigns that talk directly to people and that meet them where they're at and the, and the most important thing i think in thinking about how we make social change in in, in canada and in north america as well is like electoral politics are so rotten They are so shit. And the number of times that I've done a talk where I tell people, you know what, you can vote or not. And in the question and answer period, someone's like, what the fuck? Not vote. You got to vote. Voting's so important. It's the only... And it's so obvious to me that, that, like, the system is systemically disenfranchising people. It disenfranchises young people. It disenfranchises people of color. It disenfranchises uh, disabled people and queer people, people who uh, live precarious lives in some way. And that's the system that we use to, you know, quote unquote, run our democracy. But if it's not reaching a majority of people we have to reach those people through different means. Obviously, you cannot reach people in a broken system by just like working harder or having better data in polling or running an inquiry or saying we need more research for X or Y. Like we have all the research, we have all the statistics, we have all the knowledge. So then the question becomes, okay, well, how do we, how do we make our demands then in this, in this atmosphere, knowing that a 5% budget reduction for the cops or a 50% budget reduction for the cops are both going to be rejected by city councils or town councils that are like, no, 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 we actually love the cops. I think that people might ha- struggle a little bit to get their heads around, okay, so then what does that actually mean for when we're running our campaigns? What does that look like?
0: Right. And so like, yeah, that I mean, that is, you know what, Nora, that is such a crucial question because I feel like a lot of people who are, um, listening, probably think exactly that way. I remember thinking that way at one point. Like you know, you have a conservative government uh, provincially. You have a conservative government uh, at the city council level. You have a liberal government that might as well be conservative <laughs> federally. And of course, I'm talking from you know someone who lives in Toronto or did has like exists in Toronto uh, <laughs> mentally, brain wise, mentally, yeah. <laughs> um like what do you do then you're like okay so you 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 know you you probably are thinking as i'm sure like maybe some of these city councilors thought well let's go for 10% because it's like the lowest thing possible and maybe they'll agree to at least that no they won't. <laughs> no. <laughs> they fucking no. won't. 100% they're not going to agree to that. Like, we know this. Like, this is, you know, this is, a lot of this is ideological. And I don't believe that there's anything that I can do to convince uh, Doug Ford um, to defund the police. I don't. <laughs> but what's far more important than uh, convincing Doug Ford to uh, defund the police is to create conditions on the ground amongst people That makes it impossible not to defund the police. That is that is the more important goal, because guess what? Policy laws, they change all the time based on who holds the levers of powers of powers of power. Fuck. (laughs) Fuck. Fuck that. Fuck focusing on that, especially with something so fundamental. Right. I mean, if you're if you're thinking about trying to change like a, a very specific and complicated policy, like, I don't know the first thing that comes to fi- to mind is qualified immunity which is very american right like <laughs> people aren't aren't like going out into the streets in droves being like and qualified immunity because it's so complicated and it's like okay so maybe there is something where it makes more sense to take a a different type of approach but if you're trying to change something fundamental like Uh, you know, fucking black people are people and deserve to fucking exist (laughs) and live their lives or trans people are people and deserve to exist and live their lives or queer people are people and deserve to exist and live their lives. Fuck the rules. I like, I'm not going to convince Doug Ford to ever go to a pride parade, but I am going to be able to, to, to convince a culture that. Um, the way that we think about things needs to shift so fundamentally that he's going to be too scared to touch that law once it changes. Mm-hmm. You understand? And so what we've done already, I believe, I mean, we still have uh, some, some way to go. Don't, don't get me wrong. Like the campaigns and stuff aren't over. We still have, 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 have uh, work to do, but what we have done when I say we've already won is what we have done is we've shifted cultures so significantly um that uh y- if we do manage to change power when we do manage to change policy it will be so hard to bring it back to this moment where it is right now because people on the ground the culture has already shifted the way that they think about and understand what policing is and what it actually accomplishes in our society i want to talk about two ways that i've seen this
1: issue kind of play itself out um, and the first is the 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 corporate world's response to dealing with the Black Lives Matter movement and demands, which have been, you know, oh, we'll change our name. We'll stop using racist iconography. We'll we'll finally pull these racist episodes of this television show that we made last year. But, oh. We
0: will apologize to Colin Kaepernick. <laughs> <laughs>
1: right? And so that those are all really important signposts showing us that the corporate world knows that something is up, right? Always look to what the corporate world is doing and saying when you're trying to figure out where your issue might be in the public eye. And so that's really important. I mean, their their reactions are corporate and shitty and not sufficient and not good enough, but they still give us an indication that 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 there is there is like a possibility to fight these fight these organizations to kind of demand more. Um but that also that these feelings are widespread and we also know they're widespread because there's never been this kind of massive massive demonstrating in the streets, in both Canada and the United States. The the constant demonstrations have been incredibly massive. And just because they're not in the news doesn't mean that they're not still happening. I mean, Sandy, you're, you're paying attention to exactly how many people are marching where and when across North America. And like that all has an impact. The march itself is not the is not the goal. The march is to get people together and into the streets to show that there is a movement here and that they are plugged into it and that they support it. And every one of those people is a node, hopefully that is challenging, um, racist logic or, 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 or questioning or whatever from among the people in their circle, you know, the relations, whether that's their family or their, or their friends. And then, you know, and then there's a bit of a leftist version of that as well, which is targeting, uh, symbols there's been a lot of awesome statues coming down to the ground which is like uh, a, a, a a public way of of reckoning with past you know uh, images past understandings of who is important and who's not important um but of course the you know the, it's it's got to be deeper than that too we have to find ways to make sure that that we aren't just targeting symbolic victories or 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 the 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 lowest hanging fruit like a 10% or 5% budget reduction The other issue uh, I found while I was writing an article this week, and it struck me um, as just proof of how powerful this message has has become in kind of a in kind of a backwards and fucked up way. So did you hear the news that Jason Kenney is like green lighted uh, a plan to create local militias in Alberta? No, I missed that. What? Yeah. So It's not exactly that's how it's kind of people have been talking about it. And I understand why people are talking like that, like they should talk about it like that. But there was a a member of his government, Todd Lowen, who moved a motion for the Minister of Justice and the Solicitor General of Alberta to look into the possibility of creating volunteer corps uh, fighters or people, I guess, to assist with law enforcement in the province of Alberta. And people rightfully responded like, what the fuck is this? Militias? Like, this is green lighting militias in the province of Alberta? Like, that is, what What the hell is this? Um, and so I, I had to look into it the way that uh, the, the member of Legislative Assembly is talking about it. Lowen is like, oh, well, the thing is, is that police, you know, there's a lot of rural crime, which is like white supremacy, cached kind of um, language. Um, But the police are just you know, does it really make sense for police to do traffic stops? He said this on Global Morning and he's written this, uh, been quoted and saying this in other local news. Does it really make sense for police to do traffic stops, to fight fires, to fight floods, to um, uh, do uh, the other community policing that isn't dealing with violent crime? Does that really make sense? Or should we really have uh, people who can keep their eye on things and do that work while the police actually fight crime? And I was like... Okay, so this is proof. Yeah. This is proof that the message is one, actually, Mm -hmm. because if you don't hear his conclusion, you actually it sounds like he's a defund the police like supporter. So, you know, it's it's kind of as I said, it's a fucking funny way to look at this. But the conservatives know that this is such a powerful message and idea that they're going to find ways to still get more money to the to the police and to allow other people to get armed. Of course, you know, Alberta's like the headquarters in Canada of of like the three percenters and these kind of like violent white supremacist militias. And so there's all these other undertones or whatever into this conversation. But it is very fascinating about what happens when a message is so popular, because like every single city and town in that province has had a Black Lives Matter, Indigenous Lives Matter rally. Uh, And some have had several Several. And it is just really wonderful to watch the, pro- the, the, the process of social change happen and happen so fast.
0: Happen so quickly. Yeah, I I mean, I am. Um, that's very interesting. Like I've been thinking about uh, some of the uh, Toronto Police Service's responses to everything that's going on. You know, obviously they've they've now said, oh, you know, like we are committed to giving line by line budgets or whatever the fuck, like all this shit that they would never have done years ago uh, because they know that they've lost right like uh, the all the stuff that's around body cameras and the reason why the police are pushing for that so hard is because they know that that gives them more money in an era where they are they are definitely about to lose a bunch of money from all sorts of different uh jurisdictions like for them like this body cameras stuff is is such a boon and in fact, I think that where we need to go next, um, you know, just to, to mention very quickly, uh, though this isn't the topic of our discussion today, is to talk a little bit about how the police are using technology against people and how the, the police are invading our privacy. Things like facial recognition technology, the Stingray device that like listens into our cell phones and the way that they surveil us, all of that stuff is where the latest amounts of our public dollars are going uh, to support the police. Um, And that stuff uh, really infringes on our rights. And we haven't had enough of a conversation about that, I think in society, but it's like, look, there's like so much stuff that I've realized over the last uh, few weeks. And I'm kind of an expert on this shit. So the fact that I'm learning new things is like ridiculous. Like, What the hell is Victoria doing spending over 40% of taxpayer dollars um, that go to the city council on police? Does it make, like, over 40% Victoria? (laughs) Victoria? (laughs) Why? And who are they policing? Indigenous people. Same thing that's happening in in Vancouver. Like, it's just, you know... There's just so much information out there that, you know, I really um, think it's bullshit that as a public that we we don't know this information already. And it's taking um, uh, uh, organizers who are are a lot less resourced than like political parties or uh, official like think tanks or people who are set up as full organizations to bring this type of stuff to light. But there it is. Right. And police know this stuff. They know that they are losing, which is why they are they're doing what they can to offer things like, OK, we'll take the body cameras, give us more money or, OK, we'll give you line by line budgets or, OK, um, we do want mental health resources. Give us the money and we'll create mm. it. They know that they've lost these arguments. You know, it's uh, it's pretty significant what's happened. And I think it's it's uh, critical for those of us who. Our organizers, or even those of us who aren't, to understand when we have passed that threshold in society. So we're here to tell you that we've passed it. We've we've shifted uh, society pretty significantly on this particular issue. So what does that mean for
1: for other movements? Then, right? We're still in the middle of the pandemic. There, there's a lot of organizing going around migrant justice movements, and obviously a lot of discussions around long term care. I. When we started talking about this issue, I've just kept on thinking about the need to really be maximum program in our demands, and I really want to hammer that home. Like, how has being maximum program in your demand, not saying 5%, not saying 70%, but saying defund the police, how has that helped to shift the narrative around this issue?
0: One of the things that we had to do, like, really, um, if if you want me to take you through, like, kind of like th- the way that we strategically thought about this, it's like, you know, at the weekend um, that George Floyd was killed and Regis Korchinski-Paquette was killed, it was like we we thought to ourselves, literally, is this is this a moment where we can really do a mass education project through the media? And we, we said, yes, people are looking for answers and, um and the answers are in the principle the answer isn't in in like uh like a policy change or in you know like oh this is you know this is about qualified immunity or this is about a police oversight the answer is in defunding the police and in a critical understanding of what the police is police are and what they do and that's a principle that people needed to understand and we we started to think about can we, Affect the way can we affect people's principles through through mass education, and we thought yes, and we embarked on that project. I think the same thing can be said for a number of other issues that have come up um, um, within this kind of COVID crisis that have um, been laid bare or become more stark. Um, the the issue of migrant workers many of whom are black a lot of whom come from the Caribbean um, and work on basically plantations okay in southern Ontario and other places uh, in on in Canada and who are picking our food and who are forced to continue working in really unsafe posi- uh, conditions like That is an issue of who we value in our society, what counts as work, what work we value and protect and what work we do not. And that is a principled issue that I think that we can educate people about um, the principle of that issue. It's complex. So is defunding the police. But the principle is clear. Um, I also think that the way that we treat older people in our society or the way that long-term care uh, homes... Um, operate, man, like that's an issue that touches almost everyone. Nobody wants to see their loved ones who are older and vulnerable, uh, mistreated and cast aside by society and perhaps don't understand that that's what's happening um, when they leave them to long term care homes that are operated from these private companies who do not care about anything but their bottom line. Can we you know, educate people through a maximum program. A maximum program is, is for me, specifically about educating people about the principle behind it. Should your loved ones be cared for uh, through a motivation of profit or through a motivation of this is what we have to do, this is the right thing to do, we need to take care of people? Um, I think that that's, that's a pretty simple message Uh, to deliver to people in a mass sort of way. And I think one of the biggest issues, I wish we had an organization that was working on this specifically, is how much time we spend working. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus. I mean, God, we talked about this a few weeks ago on the podcast and it generated quite a bit of discussion. Um, But right now, like, we should be having a principal discussion about, God, we spend so much time working um, in normal times that we don't have time to really dedicate to understanding the way that politics affect our everyday lives. And the reason why people can do that right now is because we have a diminished capacity uh, to be working, to be distracted by work. And, you know, we see, um, uh, most notably New Zealand, making the decision to reduce their work week um, when they come out of the lockdown for COVID, I think that that has to be a discussion. If it is the case that all of these societal problems that lead to the deaths of Black and Indigenous people uh, far more than anyone else in our society and the 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 ridiculous ways that we take care of uh, such important issues like security and safety and um the elderly in our society and so on, uh, are not taken care of simply because we don't have the time to pay attention because we're all working so much. Then we need to be thinking about like the principle of how much time we dedicate. Uh, to our employers, and quite frankly, our you know we have the ability to change that it's been changed before the eight hour the eight hour workday and uh, five day work week is something that was decided upon, and we can decide upon something different if we want to and so yeah, I think maximum program is really about principles, talking about principles. And for so many issues right now, that's totally the way that we should be talking about things. Now, there are organizations that have been talking about issues like this
1: for a long time. And if you're interested in any of these issues, take a look around your community or around online to see if there's a way that you can get involved. But I think that what has become very, very obvious over the course of the pandemic and hopefully while you've been listening to this podcast is that we really cannot survive with incremental small reforms small victories given by politicians that can evaporate you know the second that they lose power and none of these kinds of horse trading with this party and that party over their policies that what we need to demand are principled broad scale changes and the wonderful thing about how social change does work is that as we create a society where we start to come up to new consensuses together where we understand that we don't want for-profit long-term care where we understand that the role of police uh, shouldn't even exist in a, in a just society uh, or we can talk about prisons and how we can abolish prisons and, and actually have a system that enables us to deal properly with, with crime, with the root causes of crime, what, what happens when someone commits crime, what happens when you're a victim of crime. These, they're all all sorts of really amazing and radical solutions. And when the population is primed for these solutions, then we will start to see politicians responding and, and, and finally not feeling like they're constrained by the, the narrowness of so much of our political discussion and journalists as well. I mean, that has a similar impact on journalists, too. And so argue with your friends, argue with your parents. <laughs> get involved in some sort of organization or group or collective or or, or whatever, uh, talking about these issues, doing these issues. I guarantee you there's something nearby that you can get involved in and let's create that societal consensus for, for, the, for, this, for the moment that this pandemic ends and the banks and the corporations and the Galen Westons of the world and the Kielbergers who are all lined up at the public trough about to take back as much of the pie as they can, uh, that they're stopped, not because the liberals are a progressive party, but because they know that uh, they will be in trouble if they ignore the will of what has been created, this new consensus and this new normal.
0: That is a great way to end. But I have one final thing to say. It has nothing to do with our episode. Oh, Nora got, Nora got Instagram. You guys, (laughs) Nora has not, has avoided being on Instagram for all this time, but she has finally gotten Instagram. Her Instagram is for the podcast. It is Sandy and Nora at Sandy and Nora. You should show it some love, uh, by following it, Nora does not currently have the ability to share any photos or anything like that. So I'm helping her out a little bit (laughs) until such time that she gets that ability. But if you are so inclined and you are on Instagram, please follow us because we're going to we're going to try to get some some content out to you through there as well.